randomly knows how to play a cello. We've got some ideas. <laughs> hey, let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for yet another opportunity to come to this place, to gather with your people and open up your word. This, is, this isn't just some other Sunday. It's the day that you've given us to remind us of what you have done and what you are doing. And so we pray that we see you in your word today. You've blessed our church in so many ways. They, they don't need me. We need you. We need to be changed by you and to fall deeply, more deeply in love with you. We need to walk away from this place with an eternal understanding of who you are and what we're doing. And so God, as we, as we look at a couple of verses in Romans, would you, would you make it much more than the sum of our parts? Would you guard me from saying foolish things? Would you call us to repentance and call us to mission and call us to all the things you call us to? That's not something a preacher can do, but but God, your spirit changes us as we open up your word. And so do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Can we get the lights up, please, uh, so people can see their Bibles? Um, well, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little, little racks beneath seats. If you don't own a, a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of incredibly important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. And, and listen, we, we want you to know God. We want you to have a living, thriving relationship with him that's shaped by him, that knows him, that, that views the world through that relationship with him. And if the Bible's the way that he uh, changes you in those ways, makes himself known to you in those ways, it's a really, really dumb idea to not be reading the Bible. And so, like, we want you to have a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that little paperback one home. If you want a nice one, we got a lost and found out in the hallway, and you can just scratch somebody's name off of it and call it your own. But if you start reading, we believe that God's going to use it, all right? So Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're pretty deep now into a series that we've been working on all the way back since Easter uh, through the book of Romans. We've been calling it Just and Justifier. There's the artwork back there. All right? uh, but uh, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the ancient church at Rome, and, and he does so to ask for help in taking the gospel onto Spain. We think that he, that he writes it about 56 AD. He's in the city of Corinth uh, when it's going on, and so he's in Greece. Rome is to the west of them. He believes that God's calling him to take the gospel even farther west onto Spain, and so he writes this letter to ask them for help, but instead of setting up a first century version of a Kickstarter, he instead, man, he casts a massive vision for what God is doing, and he just kind of lets the chips fall. He, he unfolds it for this Roman church, and he says, what are we going to do about it? 
All right? And so Paul crafts a masterpiece logical argument for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and other guys like him to take that gospel to the nations. And the picture that we've been using to try to wrap our, our heads around this absolutely monstrous thing, this just behemoth, is that of a skyscraper. Skyscrapers are also kind of behemoths, right? You, you stand at the bottom, you look up, you get dizzy. They're, they're, you, you, they don't just show up overnight. But still, somehow, they always get built, right? And, and why? It's because there's a plan. There's, there's an intentionality. There's a slow, steady pace through the work. And over time, it may be a long period of time, but over time, the skyscraper always gets built. And Romans is the same way. Paul is building a giant thing here, both to, to celebrate God's grand plan and to call us to join into that plan. And so it's big and it's intimidating, but piece by piece, by slow, methodical piece, he's getting there. And like we said last week, it's just beginning to peek out above the rest of the skyline. And I mean, if I could just give an overarching summary to uh, his argument through this letter, through the first 11 chapters of this letter, it would be this. Uh, we are separated from God because of our sin, right? Uh, but God is uh, just, and he will rightly punish us for that sin. But, but Jesus came to save some by paying the penalty that we deserve through dying on the cross. He calls on people to respond to him, respond to his work, and so the righteous now stand by faith. God's plan to save existed long before the foundation of the world, right? Not just for the Jews only, but the Gentiles are also getting involved in this. It's for all nations too, and our great promise keeping God will, will fulfill all his promises and receive the glory for it forever and ever. Amen. That's a nutshell summary of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. It's also a nutshell summary of the gospel, right? Like, like Paul's not reinventing anything here. He's just laying it out for the Roman church and say, what are we going to do with it? These are the realities that we're dealing with. These are the realities that are in front of us. What now? So now that we've got this superstructure in place, where, where do we go? Well, Paul is going to go somewhere that he always seems to want to go in his letters, the practical. Let me show you what I mean. Romans chapter 12, look at the first couple of verses. Hey guys, we're only going to look at two verses today. Two, two verses. It's gonna, like by our normal pace, it should take us like five minutes and we're out of here. Chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so where does Paul go? He says, therefore, right? There's a pivot here. Those of y'all who have... um been around long enough for us to, to teach through and preach through other letters that Paul has wrote have, have heard this before. Uh, but, but if you're new, let me teach you a couple of 10-cent words for uh, just a second. Uh, indicative and imperative. Indicative and imperative. And indicative is something that explains a truth, right? It explains a truth. It gives testimony to something. Uh, you're probably more familiar with the term indicate, right? All right? And so it, it 
progresses. It's a logical flow. An indicative is a flow of logical proposition to proposition to proposition. This is true, and so this is true, and so this is true. But an imperative is different. An imperative is just another word for a command. A command. An indicative is me explaining what I've done for you, and an imperative is me telling you to go do something. Those are the differences between those two words. And in verse verse 1 here, Paul says, therefore. He moves from explaining what has been done for you to commanding a response in light of that revealed truth. And make no mistake, it is a command. It is a command, both by the authority of Paul's apostleship, right? Like he establishes that back in chapter 1. I know it's been a while, but uh, several months ago when we looked at Romans chapter 1, Paul opens up that letter by declaring himself to be an apostle. And so Paul carries an authority here that you and I don't carry just, and won't ever carry. Paul speaks for God in this moment. And so when he speaks In that authority, our response ought to be following. So it's a command simply because it comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. But it's also a command because, well, the most important imperatives in life always naturally flow out of indicatives. Always. In other words, obvious commands always flow out of life-changing truths. Always. And this is why every single week we call people in here to respond to the proclaiming of God's word, right? It's not, it's not filler. It's not because, you know, we think that closing things out with a song is a better way to do things. You know, send you out on a high note. It's not something we might choose to cut out if we run a little bit long. As if that would ever happen here. Now see, when you declare what God has done, guys, it demands a response. Something ought to respond to that. And so, and so that little time for us is, a, is an opportunity that we give you to process those massive truths, to act on them in some way before we make a bunch of dumb announcements and all go off our separate ways. We want, to, we want you to be able to respond to that. And so that's the space that we give you for that. And so Paul says, therefore. He pivots from truth to command. But that command isn't cold and calculating. It's got some soul behind it, right? So uh, look what it says. Look back at verse 1 again. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you, plead with you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So there's a weightiness and an urgency to what Paul's talking about right here, right? Here, right? He, there's, there's a tone in his voice that's pleading with. It's not simply just, I tell you to do, so you do. No, I'm, I'm pleading, I'm begging, I'm appealing to you right now. I mean, think about all the things that we've celebrated so far in this letter about what God has done for you, the goodness that he has shown to you. Like, even though we deserve wrath, you have instead received mercy. Even though we come ethnically as one outside of the camp, we are instead welcomed in with open arms. Even though we have rejected God as the good, wise creator king, we have instead been adopted as sons and daughters. Those are massive changes. These kinds of truths, when they're revealed, when we grab a hold of them and understand them for the first time, they demand a response. And so Paul appeals, he pleads with them. He says, therefore, 
What does he say next? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifices are an Old Testament thing, right? I thought we were done with those. There, there are different types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Sacrifices for this, so you do that. Sacrifices for that, so you do this. Most of them, most of them they were seen as a way to clean yourself up before God so that you can remain near to Him. God is holy and you are not, and a sacrifice was supposed to bridge that gap, right? That's what they were for in the Old Testament, but we're, we're told in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews that the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. That God accepted them by their by grace alone, through faith alone. And so that blood sacrifice was really a picture of something bigger. It wasn't just a religious action. It was alluding to something to show how serious their sin was and what it actually cost. Death. And so they kept bringing sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, because there was always always more sin to be atoned for and then jesus steps on the scene and lays down his own life right and hebrews 10 tells us that jesus died once for all a single sacrifice for sin and then he then he went and sat down because the job was over and so we we as God's people, we no longer have any need to, to spill the blood of animals because, well, they were only ever a picture of something that was about to happen, and that's happened, and so it's not, not our job anymore. God's people owe no more bloodshed, nor do they owe any sacrifice for sin. The debt has been paid. And so, so what's, what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about sacrifices and stuff like what what do we do with that well sacrifices for sin weren't the only sacrifices in the old testament there was also the the offering of thanksgiving it was a sheer act of love and adoration for god and what he had done his people gave like they just gave like they gave abundantly and without provocation they just gave they gave because their god is good and they saw his goodness and they experienced some of that goodness and they responded in kind so they gave abundantly and they just gave that's what paul's talking about here a thanksgiving offering, a, a natural response to who God is and what he has done. It's a celebratory act of giving, and it's a living sacrifice because no more blood is required of God's people. He doesn't want your blood. He doesn't need your blood. The picture has been fulfilled. So what are we sacrificially giving away then? Paul says, present your what? Your bodies, right? So are we talking about physically, or does that mean like where I work, or what I do for hobbies? Does that mean sexually? Does that mean my diet? Does that mean like sleep habits, where I live, where I play? What, what about, like, does it mean all those things? Yeah, it's all of the above. All, all of the above. The Greek word is the word somata for body there. It means the material and the immaterial. It's kind of a, 
all-inclusive word for everything about you. So in other words, God wants everything. Like all of you, the whole package. Not, not just one piece, not, not even just 99%. He wants the whole thing. Oh, what a dictator, right? What a tyrant. I, see, I knew, I knew that if I did this Jesus thing, that he was going to try to take his throne back, right? But this command doesn't flow out of a tyrannical heart. It flows out of the one who showed you infinite mercy that you have no business receiving. Not one lick. The king who saved you and is saving you and, yes, will save you. Guys, he wants everything, absolutely everything. And in return, he gives you himself. Like, I don't know if you've ever really thought through how this trade works, but you win that trade. Like, you came out on the good end there. I, I, I know it sounds uh, kind of severe to say he wants everything, every part of you, the material and the immaterial, but have you really thought through what he gives you in return? So handing it over in glad celebration is, because it's really nothing more than the appropriate response to correctly understanding who he is and what he's doing. It's kind of a common sense, oh, okay, that, that, those are the terms? Sure, I'll give it up. But he also calls for your Thanksgiving sacrifice to look a certain way. Look at the next part. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, comma, holy and acceptable to God. Um, so access to God by grace through faith is a really stinking big deal. It, it, it just it ought to floor us when we begin to try to think through all that that, that entails. All right, it's a massive, massive deal, and it's something that we will celebrate forever and ever and ever in heaven. But that doesn't, for one half second, even a fraction of a second, diminish what God has, what God actually deserves from us. See, we have access to him by grace through faith, but what is actually owed to him? Um, what am I talking about? Well, every culture and every generation within those cultures, they have blind spots, right? It's just part of the fallen world that we live in. It comes with sinful hearts living in society, right? And so when it, when it comes to the church in our own culture, past generations, past generations, um, they, they were really, really good at understanding and celebrating God's holiness and God's bigness and God's righteousness. And so they wrote songs and they structured worship services and they dressed themselves and they even built their church buildings in such a way as to communicate that, right? God is big. God is holy. God is other than. You don't approach this God without a certain degree of reverence. But their blind spot was was often that they held God at arm's length. And despite what, despite the access to God that Jesus had purchased for them, they, they, they usually preferred 
to keep him off over there. And they did, they did the, the righteousness thing well, and they did the holiness thing well, but, well, they viewed him as inaccessible unless all of the personal holiness boxes were ticked. So your access to him had to be maintained through your effort. And so beginning with my parents' generation, the church took a kind of a reactionary pendulum swing. Really took flight at the beginning of, of my generation. Um, we've often been guilty of the exact opposite of that, right? The exact opposite of that. Um, we love to celebrate God's nearness purchased for us by Jesus. And so we love to sing songs and we love to, uh, uh, to, to speak about God's great gift of love for us. And so we structure our services and we wear clothes and we even build our church buildings in order to communicate that reality. That, that this is a place that you can get, that you can come draw near to God. All are welcome here. Come on in. Right? So that's the tone that, that my generation has Desperately tried to set. And and our blind spot is that we often have no idea how much reverence he actually deserves. We're clueless. And as generational distinctions often go, each side likes to think that the other one doesn't know what they're talking about. And so we talk past each other. But the biblical reality is that God is always coming and making himself known to those who have no business being near to God. And then when he does, they are forever changed by his holiness. Those of you who know your Bible well, think Isaiah and Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah thinks of himself as pretty awesome compared to the folks around him. He, he, he was one of the righteous guys in his culture. He finds himself through a vision immediately in the throne room of the king, and he doesn't know what to do about it. He immediately understands, feels the weightiness of his sin and separation before an infinitely holy God. And so even though Isaiah is leagues ahead of his countrymen, Isaiah is in trouble. He goes, oh no, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king and he hits the deck. And God cleanses him of that sin and he sends him out on mission. God uses him for his purposes. Paul says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Acceptable. And so from my generation's perspective, that probably means not not lazily, not half-heartedly, not with whatever left, you know, after you're done with it. Here you go, God. I heard that you're pleased to accept whatever I have to offer you. You're welcome. Or is that pulling the curtain too far back behind my, my generation's culture? Here you go, God. Now, he, he dwells in unapproachable light, right? If it weren't for his perfect mercy, we would all be consumed. Yes, Jesus purchases us access to the Father by his death, but no man can see his face and live. Those are both true. follower of Jesus 
you were invited into the throne room of the king based solely on the reputation of another, not yours. Take care how we walk in the room. But listen, if you're from a different generation than me, a sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God may look different for you. It really may. Your sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God might mean that it's high time to strip away the false sense of self-righteous bravado. As if you did anything to help you get in the door. Or as if you could do anything now to maintain your place there. Right? God must be pleased with me because I fill in the blank. Church, a sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to God is one that joyfully rests in both his unfathomable and unearnable love for you. It's both. And so look what Paul says next. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, comma, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, Some of your translations, if you like to read the King James, may say your reasonable worship. Other translations, like the NIV or the uh, Christian Standard Bible, they like to say that it's your true worship. Uh, And so those vocabulary words probably feel like completely different concepts to most people. So which is it, right? Which is the right translation? Is it spiritual or is it true or is it reasonable? Like what do we go with there? Because those don't sound like the same things. Well, the Greek word is the word logikos. And so even if you don't know Greek, you can probably hear the root word in there, right? Logikos. It's where we get our English words logic or logical from. So when you hear the word logical, how many of y'all go, oh, that means spiritual? <laughs> I mean, it feels like opposite things to us, right? It does. It feels like opposite things. We're, in fact, we're told all the time in our culture that the, 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 I can't speak apparently, that there's this war. We're told all the time in our culture that there's this war that exists between the spiritual and the logical, right? Between anything religious and anything doing with reason we're told all the time that spiritual is actually the polar opposite of logical and that they're enemies of each other and so i mean you can you can delve into the spiritual for a little bit but you're gonna have to lay logical aside for a second to do so but that's a post-enlightenment idea and in fact if you want to get technical it's actually a post 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 enlightenment idea In other words, it hasn't existed for very long. It's purely a concept that exists only in the hypermodern West. And so it would sound foreign to, to split off the spiritual and the logical. It would sound foreign to most peoples across most of human history. What Paul is articulating here is a whole life response to things that are plainly seen obviously seen. They're not simply religious hoops that you jump through for the magical sky fairy. Blindly taking the next step so you can follow that spiritual pathway. No, it is the natural and obvious response, reaction to understanding what God has done and is doing. How could you do anything less? And that response includes every single piece of you, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's not mindless. Your entirety is involved. Every ounce of you reacts to this. 
The gospel is a truth claim in a world of starkly competing ideas. It's also one that the Apostle Paul believes is provable and natural. And it's also one that Paul believes is completely worthy of giving your whole self over to without any restraint. The word logikos, it encompasses all of these things at once. And so some translators think it's best to say true. And some translators think it's best to say reasonable. The guys who put together the ESV think that spiritual carries the tone that Paul is using here. Which leaves it to guys like me to have to stand in front of people and explain that spiritual probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Which happens a lot around here. But wait a second, Stephen. Like I, I mean, you keep using words like logical and proving, like... I thought we were supposed to have childlike faith, right? Like Jesus said that once. Aren't we supposed to have childlike faith? Why, why do we need all this other stuff? Because being childlike doesn't have anything to do with rejecting reason and pressing for logical answers. In fact, it's almost the exact opposite of being childlike. I've, I've got kids in the house right now, like young kids, which means daddy gets a lot of questions, right? Did you go through this stage? Questions always seem to ramp up around bedtime, too. All right. um, some questions are really easy to answer. Some questions are really hard to answer. Some questions I don't want to answer, and I tell them to go ask mommy, right? <laughs> questions and trying to figure things out, feeling your way around, learning through experience, th- those aren't the opposite of being childlike. Those are pretty much hand-in-hand hand with being childlike. It's, it's what... It's just the stage that children are in. The thing that makes kids so special is that they trust the ones that they're asking the questions to. To actually give them faithful answers. Which means I've got a weighty responsibility, don't I? Daddy needs to maintain their trust. And sometimes they understand the answers, and sometimes they really don't, but Daddy needs to answer the question to the best of his ability, both for their current and their future good, right? That's what good daddies do. I'm, I'm, don't always hit that out of the park. I'm trying. And that raises the question for us, though. How do we pursue childlike faith? Like, how do we pursue childlike questions as grown-up followers of Jesus? I'm so glad you asked. Paul is too. He's got an answer. Look at the next verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind. It says don't be conformed. Don't be shaped by this world, by this age. Don't be molded into this age and culture. Because, you know, like teenagers are the only folks in the room that have, like, have to deal with peer pressure. Not you? Okay. Whether we're talking about work or friends or whatever you're doing, whatever we, wherever you live, we all deal with this, right? Can we just be honest about that? We all deal with this. 
And so Paul commands his readers, in light of what God has done for you, hey, don't be shaped by what's opposed to him. Don't be forced into that mold. But, but here's the deal. And this is the, this is the rub. You, you don't have to come to National Baptist Church to hear that message this morning. Right? You, you, just, you just don't. In fact, that message is getting proclaimed in churches all over the place today, probably. The message of don't be conformed is probably being preached from thousands of pulpit as we speak. It's kind of the bread and butter of the broader Christian subculture, even. Don't be conformed. Don't look like such and such, or do so and so. Come out and be separate. And so it's come up in our text. We need to deal with it today, right? But before we deal with it, um, there are two incredibly dangerous traps that we need to watch out for. Incredibly dangerous traps. Um, And I think it'd be wise to point at them. Number one, Paul isn't writing this letter to 21st century secular democratic American culture. He's writing this letter to a church living in a first century polytheistic Greco-Roman empire. Okay, Stephen, well, why does that matter? Um, because honestly, a whole bunch of the pulpits calling for the church to not be conformed probably think that the problem started about 60 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 300 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 5 years ago, or pick whatever major historical event you want to point to and go from there. And there's this lingering idea in the back of a lot of Christians' minds that if we could just get back to blank, then everything would be golden again, right? Everything would be great. If I could just get back to having such and such be a part of our culture, ingrained in our DNA, then everything would be righteous again. Paul writes this letter to a church that looked very, very different than ours, culturally speaking. and um, In some ways, it was more progressive than us, and in many ways, many, many ways, it was considerably more conservative than our culture, but the makeup of the culture doesn't really matter at all. It it doesn't. Paul doesn't care what culture you call home or what culture you wished you call home, whether it's fast and progressive or slow and conservative or the thousand points in between doesn't really matter. The Apostle Paul seems to believe that your culture, whatever it is, is trying to force you into an unchristlike mold. Whatever that culture looks like, because there's no such thing as utopian past. None. It doesn't matter what part of the world we're talking about. It doesn't matter what generation we're talking about occupying it. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, every single culture across every single generation has been tragically upside down from the wisdom of our good God. All of them. The sinful rejection of God as king may flesh itself out in a thousand different ways across a thousand different cultures, but there hasn't been one single culture in all of human history that did not fully and actively deserve the wrath of God. And ought to be destroyed. So no matter what culture you call home or what culture you wished you called home, you're Your culture is going to tell you to look like this and think like that and value this thing over that thing. It's what cultures do and buried deep down within the very middle of it always will be a kernel of a Genesis 3 lie. Always. 
a lie that says you can be your own little God to go get it. You don't need that one. Go be it yourself. But here's the really hard part. Any heart in the world can see those disconnects in somebody else's culture. In fact, it's pretty easy. But it takes a heart that's humbled by God and illuminated by his word to see it in our own culture. And so Christians across every single generation, across every single culture, guys, we're called to be nonconformists. Always. Doesn't matter what the culture looks like, that's our role, the outsider. To, to see and think about and value and live in the world differently than those who don't know what we know. To see and think and value and live in the world differently than those who don't love what we love or, or chase what we chase. We're different. But I told you there were two dangers, right? The second danger is that our nonconformity is never, ever, ever meant to end on itself. So I said nonconformity a second ago, and some of y'all perked up a little bit. I saw it in your eyes. You just kind of wired into you to want to be that guy. Yeah? Some of, some of us like to be lemmings. All right, that's me. All right? Some of us, we like to be the rebel. I don't want to be the nonconformity. Isn't it kind of pain is that it's attractive in our culture, right? To be the non-conformist. Whether we're talking about libertarian politics or homeschooling, whether you're growing your own organic vegetables in your backyard or going full bore and being Amish, right? Like, there's kind of this thing. Like, some of us do those things because we truly believe that's a better way to live. Some of us do it because we just like to stick it to the man. But a Christian stiff arm of the culture around them it's never simply so that we can be the outsider. It's, it's so that we can be further transformed by something else. It's the half step before the finish line. Paul's command is that we be transformed by the renewal of our what? Our minds. Through God's word, God shapes us to see things the way he sees them, to value things the way he values them, all right? And so when that happens, you've got a glorious transformation on your hands. Stuff changes. You can't even help it. You begin to look more and more and more like your king. And so the truest form of nonconformity, in the truest definition of the world, of the word, is to look like nothing this world actually has to offer. An alien righteousness. But there's also a kingdom to come where that righteousness will be celebrated forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But listen, as great as head and heart transformation are, they they're not the finish line either. They actually serve a greater purpose too. And so look what Paul says next. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, comma, that by testing you may discern or understand what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hey, do you want to know what the will of God is? Like anybody ever asked that question? 
As a pastor, I get asked that question all the time. What's God's will for me? I usually get that question more often around people's graduating from stuff or changing jobs or thinking about changing jobs or whatever it is. But we all ask that question, right? Over and over again. Even I ask that question. And so, like, like what, what is God's will for my life? Should I choose option A or option B? Who should I marry? What should I do for a living? Should I live in this house, that house, or the other house? Should I have bacon or sausage with my breakfast? You know, the grand questions of life. It's a trick question. The answer is both. Always have both. If they don't offer both, get it as a side. Stephen's life hack. Paul here, he lays the foundation for how we answer every single one of those questions. Like, like you have questions, Paul's about to answer them for you. You ready? If you answer this question, you are 99.9% of the way to answering every other question involving God's will in your life. Are you ready? I don't know if you're ready. Are you ready? All right. Which option helps me be transformed instead of conformed? Answer that question. And you're like almost all the way there. Which option helps me be transformed rather than conformed? You want me to flesh that out a little bit? I'll flesh it out. Which option helps me pursue holiness? A or B? Which option helps me look more like my God? A or B? Which option helps me kill sin? A or B? Which option helps me see and think and value what he sees and thinks and values? A or B? And if the answer is A, you go with A. And if the answer is B, you go with B. And if the answer is both, then it doesn't matter. Pick one. And if the answer is neither, it doesn't matter. Pick neither. The perfect will of God in your life is never going to be option B instead of option A or flip the other way around and standing on its head. It's sanctification through the refusal to be conformed into this world and a dogged determination to test yourself and renew your mind. Everything else is fluff. Everything else fades into the background and will be okay. It doesn't matter as much as we think it does. It just really doesn't. Listen, we're going to get to some practical live this way kind of stuff as we flesh out the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14. All right? Those are going to come. We're going to get to that stuff. Paul has specific commands of response for the church at Rome and for us. But before we get to that, before we get to that, we've got to get this locked down that... These commands stand on the shoulders of a massive reality that changes everything. Changes everything. That God did for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. That he loved you and pursued you and rescued you in spite of you. And the second we let that soak down to the marrow, it changes everything else about us. We'll get to the practicals, but those practicals flow out of a new reality. Indicative pivots to imperative. This reality demands a whole life response. A reasonable, spiritual, true giving of yourself in worship. So how do we respond to this? Like, what do we do with God's 
word this morning. And like we talked about it a second ago, let's, let's put it into practice, right? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your, your response is to press into God today. And we say that every week, but it's true every week. You, you repent of sin and you lean in to what he has revealed about himself. He is the one who saves and expects you to give over your whole self. He gives you himself and he expects you to give you, expects you to give him yours. That's a hard sentence to say. But listen, in, in light of who he is and what he's done, like how could you ever honestly give him less? That struggle that we have, it's because we're not seeing him correctly. I mean, it's just the truth. That, that, that moment of, I don't know if I can trust him. I'd like to hang on to a little bit of control. It reveals what we actually understand about him. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing it over. That'll be a time for you to respond to to his word this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. I I really am. But listen, I don't think it's an accident that you're here just not. Our God's bigger than that. And so you can respond to God's word too this morning. You do that by meeting Jesus. Your your sin separates you from God. It deserves the punishment that sin rightly is owed, and a perfectly just God will not fail to give it. He won't. But God is also, at the very same moment, the great justifier. God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Your sin. So now he calls on you to repent and respond to him in faith. And you can do that today. That's what this time is for. Maybe you're here today and you want to respond in some other way. Maybe it's by being obedient in baptism. Maybe it's by joining this uh, this church. Maybe it's to say yes to the call of missions in your life. Whatever that looks like for you, our chance to respond is here. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and that will be a time for you to do that. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you in some way this morning, but you don't need us. We're here for you, but you don't need us. Do business with a holy God today who loved you and gave you himself, and so let's pray and let's respond. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans and chapter 12 and the weightiness of two verses. I'll go ahead and confess, I am far more easily conformed to the image of this age. It bleeds out of me when I'm pressed. And so I know it's sunk in deep. But you have given us your church and you've given us your word so that we might root out sin and root out false worldviews and root out insufficient idols instead be transformed by you sounds weird to say it but help us be strange in a world of competing ideas help us be strange oh but God help us Help us not be strange for the sake of being strange, but for the sake of looking like you. You are good and righteous and holy. You are near. You are patient. You are kind. You are God. And we owe you our everything.
So as we respond this morning, would you help those who know you respond well? Would you make yourself known to those who don't know you yet? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to your grace? So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.